Get him stopped. Get him stopped. God and Moses both in a sidecar did not drive a sprint car with a thousand horsepower. I swear to God, he done a double somersault backwards. My car will go past wide open. Uh, my 50,000 came in a Twinkie box. You know, I get my jollies off over looking at a nice car wash. You know, he's going to crash your shit, but he's still, he's still got great stories. Oh, they disappeared. Oh, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> Inflated your old ball sack and you just freaking let it eat. It's all goddamn assholes and elbows, and if you ain't right, they'll send your ass to the rear. Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Open Red, the official podcast of the World of Outlaws NOS Energy Drink Sprint Car Series and the Extreme Outlaw Midget Series presented by Toyota. My name is Ross Weiss. Welcome to another episode. We're back at episode three here for the 2023 season and our first midget episode of the year as the Extreme Outlaw Midget Series prepares to start its season this coming weekend at the Southern Illinois Center indoors at DuCoin, Illinois. Really cool couple of guests on the show this week. John and Ethan Mitchell, better you probably know them as Bundy and Little Bundy, which is their much more popular and commonly used nicknames. Uh, but really, really cool backstory for these guys. John gets his start in racing coming from you know growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, falls in love uh, working on motocross bikes, moves to California, uh, spends a lot of time at various factory teams in the MX side of the racing world uh, where he develops a deep love for in- engine building and getting the most out of smaller engines, which you'll hear him talk about in the deal. But after a tenure that included several factory MX teams, John moves to North Carolina, brings his son Ethan down down here where they fall in love with four-wheel racing, thanks to our local Millbridge Speedway uh, here in the Charlotte area. Uh, they currently live in Mooresville, North Carolina with their now, uh, now champion midget team, as of course the Bundy Belt Motorsports team was the owner champion of last year's Extreme Outlaw Midget Series with Zach Dom behind the wheel. Bundy had a heart attack near the end of 2021 that kept him sidelined for most of the 2022 season, so we didn't see him at the racetrack very much last year. You'll hear some stories about that and how he spent a lot of time on the phone with a lot of different people uh, as Ethan was kind of running things at the racetrack uh, throughout most of the events last year while John was held up at home. So shout out to Brian Dunlap uh, from also here in the World Racing Group offices, who you'll hear as another voice kind of co-hosting this interview. I think you'll hear a lot of him this year as we have more midget guests on the show. So let's go ahead and press play for this week. John and Ethan Mitchell, Bundy and Little Bundy, this week on Open Red. I want to start off to kind of set the stage for people that maybe don't necessarily, especially know you, John, from behind the scenes, but set the stage for me last year, what that accomplishment meant to you guys winning the championship with Zach in, in the car. I know you guys are a smaller team based out of here in North Carolina. What did that deal mean to you guys last year? Oh, man, it's just incredible. I mean, you know, when when we just kind of dove into midget racing without knowing anything about it, and then, you know, getting through the first year and just realizing – kind of like you just jumped into the middle of the Pacific, right? You didn't really know what you were doing. And so to to just persevere, I guess, you know, and just keep keep working and keep our head down and keep improving uh and then to come out with the championship, it was it was it was incredible, you know? It was awesome. How tough, I know you guys faced some adversity early on last year. How tough was it for you to be here? when the team was out there racing where you were like, we'd always like you two were always together in every race. How tough was that change to make? Yeah, it was, uh, it was weird for sure. Um, 
I uh, I mean, <laughs> there was a couple times I felt like, you know, I was going to get the cops called on me because uh, <laughs> I was at home, you know, on the back porch, had my laptop set up, you know, and I'm screaming and hollering and just raising cane, you know, uh, especially like at BC 39 when both cars are just totally up front every time they hit the track. Um, but it was hard. It was It was hard to... How do I say this? It was, it was hard to be, um, I was trying to insert myself back into my life, right? After being gone for four months. So it was a, it was a difficult situation to let go of it all that I had created and run basically all by myself with just me and him, you know, like always together. And so all of a sudden I woke up and I'm like, okay, well, I got to get back in here. You know, I got to do this. It's just my deal. We got to succeed. We got to win. And I I was in no shape to be doing any of that. And finally, you know, uh, big kudos to Ethan. Uh, He just sat me down and said, look, Dad, it's going to be okay. We, you know, we took what you taught us, and we're in a really good spot. And um, if you'll just sit back and let us do it uh, and focus on your health, then I think you'll see that, you know, things will turn out good. And So let, let, let's go back and fill in for people that aren't aware. You had a pretty substantial health scare. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did that happen? What exactly happened? How long were you laid up in the hospital? So I had a heart attack on December the 1st. Um, I think I didn't get out of the hospital. Till what year? Oh, 2021. Yeah, December 1st, 2021. And I didn't get out of the hospital till March, right? So I was in there for all December, all January, all February. Got out of the hospital in March. And then really wasn't able to go back to work until eight months after that. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, you know, had to, had to try and get back going again. Uh, so on the flip side of what he was just talking about, Ethan, then what what was it like for you at the racetrack kind of running this thing yourself with him watching from afar? Yeah, you know, definitely a change of pace for me. I'd say, uh, you know, like Brian said earlier, that me and Dad went to every race together. It was basically just me and him for the whole, you know, three years that I did it before before his heart attack. But, um, you know, I think I got used to it pretty quick just for the simple fact that I had to, you know, I didn't really have no choice if I wanted to be at the racetrack it was going to be me or and me only basically so we got used to that pretty fast uh we had a guy come on board his name's Brian as well but um he came on board with us and been helping us all year and huge thanks to him he's uh he's a great help and I wouldn't have been able to do it all year without him but um yeah you know it's definitely different not having crew chief and old man there yelling at you all day but (laughs) feel like uh I feel like everything happens for a reason you know and I feel like uh honestly I feel like we're we're better now than we've ever been so I think uh I think it's shown us a lot of things and uh we've had to scale up in a lot of areas so I'm happy with it how tough was it to initially starting off last season you know you're rolling into the chili bowl with your dad still in the hospital and you know how difficult was that just to stay focused on I mean you really performed well given it all the adversity you were facing away from the track. How tough was that? Yeah, now that, yeah, that's a different story. That was, uh, for me, that was pretty tough. I was, uh, 
I don't know. You know, I was just like anybody, I guess, but I was having a hard time with the whole deal. His dad was, for a while there, like, it wasn't no normal heart attack. You know, we we really thought he wasn't coming back. So, even through Chili Bowl, you know, right before Chili Bowl, just got some bad news about, I don't know, something and some disease in his lungs or something that just had shown up out of nowhere. So, we went to Chili Bowl, and uh, Chili Bowl is definitely tough. Walking around all week, answered the same questions probably 600 times to everybody. Got tired of it by the end of the week, but, you know, I get everybody's got questions and wants to know how he's doing. But, um, no, it, it it sucked, you know. It sucked at Chili Bowl not having him there and him being in the hospital, not even really awake at that point, just kind of loopy, I guess. Because I had talked to him before I left, and it was like talking to a blank wall. So, I don't know. It, it sucked, and it was kind of scary. But um, just – Got to take it and get over it, right? So that final weekend uh, for the extreme schedule last year, we're at Port City, then two nights at I-44. Zach wins at Port City that night. I heard from a lot of people, you 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 were calling everybody that weekend as it was going on, and you're watching from afar. But take me through that last weekend as you guys are trying to finish off the, the points deal and some of your <laughs> thoughts and stress here back home watching. Oh, uh, man, you know, I was, just, I was just pulling for the guys, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just my heart and soul out there. And uh, – I was just pulling for him, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure everybody in the pit area couldn't wait for me to get well because I was constantly blowing everybody's phone up. You know, what's going on over here? I was calling Dave Mack. I was calling Robert Dobby. Poor Chad Boat, man, that poor fella. <laughs> I must have called him a hundred times. Then, of course, Ethan, he's trying to do his job, right? Uh, and I'm just blowing him up, and yeah, it looks like this on the TV, you know, and... <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so, but basically I was just home, you know, um, trying to, trying to focus on my health and just cheering for my team. Really, it was kind of, kind of like, um, it was, it was a weird thing, you know, cause you're, you're just, you're always so hands on doing it. And then all of a sudden you see it actually happening without you there. I've, I felt confused. I was like, oh man. They're doing way better without me, you know. <laughs> Man, maybe I should just stay home. And um, it really, it really has turned out to be a really cool thing because I, I think that Ethan's got a lot more confidence, and I have a lot more confidence in them, Ethan and Brian, and I'm able to stay at home and focus on my business. And I mean, truth be told, man, my business suffered a little bit, you know, for for three years. I was all in. Midget racing, I love midgets. I think midgets are amazing, you know. I'm a big fan of badass race cars, and midgets are badass, you know. So, so yeah, I don't know. I kind of got lost there. But that w- You mentioned you mentioned calling Dave Mack and, and Chad and Dolby. That was really cool the last weekend, both um, to see every team jump in and help, and ultimately, ultimately that final night, Chad pulling down another car to, to finish the championship off. What was that like, was the experience and to work through? Well, yeah, like uh, I guess unlike Dad said, you know, he had an easy time chilling back on the couch. But <laughs> <laughs> when you're there in the battle, it was uh, it was not a fun weekend for me. It was uh, very stressful. And, uh, of course, we had some engine problems throughout the week, which, uh, which made it even worse for us. But I think first night, you know, um, Zach's battery wire, you know, goes all year long. And of course coming down the wire, it, uh, 
it pulled out of the socket, and uh, I had to pull in, and they pulled my battery out of me running seventh, and uh, we threw it in his car, and he went back out because obviously my number one priority was him winning the championship too. You know, I was I'm like eleventh or tenth in points, so I'm not too worried about it. I'd still like to get a championship for Bundy Bill and the team. So uh, we did that the first night, and then the second night we uh, actually swapped my motor into Zach's car. So we stayed up all night, you know, till 3 in the morning or whatnot, swapping motors. And then, uh, you know, heat race, I think it let go. And uh, then then obviously Chad pulled down the backup car, and that was, uh, that was pretty cool. So. It, was, it was pretty incredible looking over and seeing – Chad Boat pulling down another car, and you had Dave Mack. I think uh, Covers were in the middle. Everyone yeah, Orson, was in. was in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're yeah. the Chili Bowl champ helping yeah. swap and, and make that happen and get seats in and shock swapped over. What was that like? Hectic. Hectic. <laughs> Very hectic. Too many, uh, too many hands in the fire, I'd say. But definitely, uh, you know, definitely probably wouldn't have been able to do it without them guys. You know, they had to change fuel tanks, seat. They changed a lot of stuff. We even put Zach's coils on Chad's car for the uh, for the race, just make them more comfortable. So, um, yeah, that was a huge help to them. And um, yeah, just everybody stepping in at that point, I'd say, you know, game changer could have changed the whole championship. Honestly, it was easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was. Uh, so let, let's kind of run the clock back here and kind of tell the story to kind of get you guys to where you are today. Uh, you start in two wheels instead of four, but what? where did your kind of interest and love of the motocross racing come from and all the time you spent building engines in that side of the racing world? Man, it goes way back, you know, to I don't even know, really. It, it must have been, you know, eight years old, nine years old. My dad's brother had a little Yamaha dirt bike, and every time we would go over to my grandma's house, let me ride that dirt bike. Let me ride that dirt bike. So I would ride the dirt bike, you know. And then one time my dad took us to like a uh, a monster truck show, like a dirt bike race inside of like a little arena, you know, somewhere in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I think it was called the Roundhouse, like where the Chattanooga Mocks played. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I saw this dirt bike race. And I'm like, oh, man, I left there. I was telling my dad, oh, I'm going to do that. You know, that's. That's what my life's going to be about right there. And, of course, he was like, you're an idiot. You know, you need to go to school <laughs> and, and, you know. But just from that day on, I just remember it's just – I just loved it. That's what I wanted to do. Found out that uh, I tried really hard to go fast on the bike and was decent, but, like, not even close, really, you know. So I just loved everything about it. And um, so I learned how to work on the bikes. I, I had been working on my own bike learned how to work on bikes and hooked up with a couple different guys that were fast and needed some help. Just learned it from the ground up all by myself and just kind of made it from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Southern California to the to the industry, you know, and was buried in it for ever how many years, 20 plus years, you know. So as I kind of did my research and kind of got my notes together to do this interview with you guys, the the name Nathan Ramsey comes up a lot. Yeah. I thought, who yeah. who is he, and what's the significance that he's played in your career? So, uh, again, Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm going to high school with a guy named Brent Ramsey, uh, and me and Brent Ramsey both rode dirt bikes. So, of course, you know you you kind of figure out your little group in high school, right? And so, me and Brent Ramsey go riding on the weekends, and 
we go racing and we go dirt bike riding trails, all kinds of stuff. Well, there's this little kid, his little brother, who's following us around on a little tiny bike, you know, while we're out doing all this stuff. And he was just always trying to keep up with us, keep up with us, keep up with us. And, man, he just turned into a great motorcycle rider. And I knew the family. They literally lived three or four miles away from my parents' house. And one day, Nathan Ramsey's dad said, hey, you know, I'm at work all the time. Nathan's doing pretty good. We're having to travel a little bit with him. It's like, I'll pay you a little bit of money if you help take care of Nathan's stuff, you know. And I mean, it was like, you know, 10 bucks a week or something, you know, in 1989 <laughs> or whatever. So, anyways, um, yeah, I, I worked on Nathan's stuff. I enjoyed working on my stuff and his stuff. And, you know, again, all in this same time frame, I'm realizing, okay, I'm not good enough, but this kid's really good. I enjoy working on his stuff and going to the races with him. So I just kind of focused really hard on building him a really good bike. And each week I would work, you know, a lot um, and build him a bike and go to the races with him. And he made it all the way to – he got hired by Factory Suzuki. Roger DeCoster was the team manager. And – one day, I was hanging gutter with another buddy of mine from high school whose dad owned a gutter company, and Roger DeCoster called on one of them cell phones that's about as big as this table, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, said, hey, man, I got a plane ticket for you at the Chattanooga airport. Can you be in California tomorrow? It's like, no problem. Went and got on the plane, moved to Southern California in one day. I uh, went to work for Factory Suzuki. Roger DeCoster was my boss. Nathan Ramsey was my rider and we never looked back went all the way to winning a championship in 1999 i believe and you and nathan together spent a lot of time at several different factory teams correct correct yes so nathan ramsey um he was uh he was not the gifted one right he was a super hard worker uh he worked out he ate right he trained a lot and through all that he really got a great feel for the motorcycle so even though he was very competitive, he also had a really great knack for testing. He could feel anything that you did in the bike. So and he trusted me because, of course, we'd been together our whole lives pretty much. And so he didn't have a great first year in the factory ranks, we'll call it, I guess. Um, and so Suzuki let him go after the first year. Okay? Made me an offer to stay, but I was just so comfortable with him. And Pro Circuit Kawasaki hired him. And the main reason they hired him is because he had led a couple races. So he had showed some speed, but he had crashed out of the lead. And they were like, well, you know, the kid's going for it, right? So we're going to give him a chance. And so then we went to Kawasaki. Uh, and that was, I guess, kind of based off speed more than testing. And then, let's see, so we stayed at Kawasaki for three years there, and that's where we won the championship. And then Yamaha came out with a new revolutionary four-stroke, right? So we went from two-stroke to four-stroke, and they wanted Nathan to ride the first-ever Yamaha four-stroke. And so we went there, uh, rode the four-stroke. We were there for only one year, had a really good season, lost the championship uh, again, Lost it by one point to Travis Pastrana. Uh, and 
you know, we lost the championship because the new four-stroke wouldn't start at one of the races. Uh, but we learned a lot about four-strokes. We learned a lot about how the industry was changing. We worked with a lot of Japanese engineers at Yamaha. And so then Honda was bringing out their four-stroke the next year. So then Honda kind of stole him away from Yamaha uh, because he had this, all this experience on this new Yamaha bike. Honda wanted to see what it was compared to theirs. And so then we stayed at Honda for like five years, developing both their 250 and 450 four-stroke. Uh, had some success there. Won a 450 main event uh, behind Carmichael. Um, Carmichael, I think, had won every race that year except for two. And we won one of them, and Mike LaRocco won one of them. And so that was it. We just kind of always went together um, because he trusted me and basically would tell whoever was hiring him, hey, look, I ain't coming unless you bring my mechanic with me. So and then – I had different roles at different teams too, you know, but I always leaned toward the engine side of things. That's the side that interested me the most. So being in a team, you know, you're not just one guy's mechanic all the time. So I was kind of in charge of testing a lot, engine testing and stuff at different teams. And Anyways, that's how, that's how I got to where I'm at, I guess. <laughs> what is it or what was it and what still is it about getting the most out of an engine that attracted you to that side of things so strongly mm, i don't know man i just like power right it's just i've noticed took me a long time to notice but i like high revving small displacement powerful engines you know i'm not a big block guy some people are right i'm not a big high horsepower drag race guy i like awesome little engines you know they're they're amazing and um, I just always wanted to make them fast. That's all I wanted to do was make them fast. I wanted them to be the fastest thing. I never cared if they blew up or not or what. I just wanted them to be awesome, right? And so that's what we did. And I actually learned that from a guy named Mitch Payton. I don't know if you guys ever heard that name, but he's the owner of Pro Circuit Monster Energy Kawasaki. And um, Kawasaki, he had this deal with Kawasaki where – we would get like hundreds of cylinders and heads and stuff in this R&D budget. And he was the guy that just didn't stop Mitch Payton. He, we blew up more stuff. Like people talk about us blowing up and stuff and things that I've built blowing up. I'm like, you got no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Like we, we blow up a hundred motorcycles in five weeks, you know, just testing before the season. Cause we wanted to make power and, you know, I mean, pretty much that's what you have to do. You know, you have to keep going. And uh, so I I learned from Mitch Payton that uh, I wanted to build badass engines. And I just, I just kind of kept doing that. So. so then you spent a lot of time there with Nathan. What led you to make the jump to get on with the JGR M M M X program and ultimately make the move here to North Carolina? So, originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, never quite molded into that little West Coast. West Coast right. thing's a little different, right? <laughs> Not saying it's bad by any means. It's super cool. Learned a lot. Had a good time. But just always missed the Southeast the mountains, you know, the not as much traffic, the clean air, just different lifestyle, really. I was kind of from the country and 
that was big time city life living down there, you know, in Orange County. So um, I wanted to get back to the East Coast. I have been wanting to get back to the East Coast for a long time. I wanted to raise these Ethan on the East Coast, close to family, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, you know. So when the deal came open at Gibbs, I was like, all right, well, let's do it. And um, that's where I fell in love with four-wheel racing, uh, four-wheel dirt racing through the outlaw carts at Millbridge. That was going to – so that kind of leads into say where I talk about your own racing career, Ethan. What what first get, get you behind the wheel, sparks your interest, and get you behind the wheel of a, of a race car? So I think uh, about 11 years ago – yeah, about 11 years ago now, we met uh, – Dad introduced me to Mike and Max McLaughlin. And uh, that was one of Dad's first customers in the Outlaw Carts when he started building engines here at JGR. So, uh, you know, a good first customer, I'd say. But um, they invited you to come check out their shop, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess he went down there and checked it out, and they showed him all the Outlaw Cart stuff. And, you know, Dad's like, man, this would be super cool to get Ethan into. We need to, you know, get him behind the wheel one night after a race or something. And uh, that was just a box stock back then, you know. that was I think I was you know, 10, 11 years old, and uh, I made some laps after a race one night, after going and watching a few, and um, yeah, after that, we wasn't long, we got our own cart, and kept it at Mike's shop for a while, and worked out of there for a few years, and moved up to Opens, you know, 250s, then Opens, and kind of ran, I don't know, top level of that, I guess, for a while at Millbridge, and then ventured out to Cycle Land, and even uh, English Creek out by Knoxville and Red Bluff and all those tracks. So, uh, you know, that taught me a lot. And I think uh, it taught me a lot about being aggressive. You know, them things are so light and the power to weight ratio is so great in them things. They're uh, they're fast little carts. And they're, uh, as you all know, you, you know, you've watched Millbridge race outlaw carts back when it was in its prime. They put on good racing. So I think, uh, I think it taught me a lot. And that's kind of where I fell in love with open wheel racing. So you spent a lot of time in Outlaw Cards. You did a little bit of mo- modified racing, but what was the – it was a – I believe it was a, a test with Steve Reynolds that kind of swayed you to we're going midget racing? Yeah, that was it, yeah. Um, Steve had offered me to, the opportunity, I'd say, to come up there and uh, hang out for a few months and, and test their midgets and, you know, did, help did them out. Did you drive his, his uh, Outlaw Cart too? Because didn't Steve – Steve originally had Outlaw Carts at one point, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's how I uh, – that's how I was introduced to Steve is I think Dad actually built his motors, just like most people I know, I guess. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so he built his Outlaw Cart motors, and I ran for him some in the Outlaw Cart, uh, Belle Claire a little bit, and then uh, Millbridge and English Creek, actually. I ran for him a few times and stuff like that, and – uh, I think that led into the, you know, starting of the midget talk. And uh, we had a test day one day at Jacksonville on a midget. And uh, we'll just say it did not go very well. It was uh, <laughs> my first ever laps in a midget. And it was about as bad as it could get. I think I put it on its lid and did some other stuff that we won't mention on here. But, um, well, yeah, flee on to tell that story. Or? You, yeah, you can rely on flee to tell you the rest. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a rough test day, but that's all it took for me to fall in love with midgets. You know, I like you said, we had a modified that we would just gotten about ten races prior to testing the midget. We ran, you know, Charlotte with the short track deal, and then um, 
We ran Granite City once, County Line. We ran, a, you know, we run a few races, and uh, at the time, I enjoyed it. I'm like, okay, you know, moving out of outlaw cars, this is pretty cool. Like, this is a big car, full body, a lot crazier than a go-kart, you know. So I was having a blast with that, but it wasn't until I stepped in a midget. That's when I realized, you know, I'm like, ah, this is more of my speed right here. I'm like, we need to sell the modified, and we need to go midget racing. It's just so much more similar to an outlaw card, I'd say, in the power-to-weight ratio and the actual speeds you feel. The modified's a lot lazier on the aspect of just raw speed and get up and go, just kind of like chilling on the couch compared to the midget. But, um, but yeah. So where did so you guys made the decision with your midget program you're going to develop your own in- engine for this too. What what was the process for you of figuring out how to develop a midget engine from scratch and what drew you to that Honda initially to kind of maintain that relationship? So um, he wanted to go midget racing and I had fallen in love with open wheel racing the same as him. We, we fell in love with it together and everything that we've done you know, from day one, it's, it's all financial-based, right? As as you know, racing's super expensive. So I was just like, man, my kid wants to go racing, and he had showed a little bit, you know, he showed a little bit of talent here and there, and I was like, man, i really like to try and do this and give him a shot. He wants to do this, and just racking my brain every day. There's just no way I can pay $50,000 for an engine. I just, just didn't have money. And uh, I was working at Gibbs at the time, and I was <clears> – <throat> There's some crazy stories about how I was trying to swindle every which way to go. I even had, I can't remember the guy's name. He was like a big-time guy at Toyota. Probably still is a big-time guy. But I had Coy Gibbs convinced that we were going to take uh, all the leftover cup parts out of the cup shop. We were going to take all the timed-out engine parts out of the cup shop, and we were going to build Toyota midget engines because I – I couldn't afford to build one, so I was going to get Coy to help me build one. And I had already showed Coy that we could make a lot of money because we took all the motocross stuff that had been timed out and sold a bunch of these outlaw card engines across the country, you know, getting rid of basically the surplus of factory Yamaha parts that they had gotten. So I was like, hey, let's do the same thing. Let's take all these timed out parts out of the cup engine and build a Toyota midget engine and – Let's, let's sell some Toyota midget engines. I'll, I'll take these in racing. And Coy was, we had just gotten Ty Gibbs. Coy had come out and watched Ethan and watched Max. And he's like, oh, I want to get Ty in this. So then we built Ty a cart, right? We built Ty a cart and put a box stop on it. And I think we took one of JD's kids, too, at the same time, yep. Coach. So we got Ty and JD's son and we took them out we took them outlaw cart racing in at Melbridge and so Coley was there a lot you know and he saw that Ethan could drive a little bit and he was kind of on board with getting this Toyota engine thing and using all these cup I think the guy's name was David at Toyota I'm not sure but anyways I remember it was a rain delay at Texas this had to be four or five years ago there was a rain delay at Texas and Coley called me and said hey Sky David, I don't know his name. Uh, head guy Toyota's like, dude, you're not gonna build them midget engines out of your shop with these leftover parts. That ain't happening. Uh, 
So Coy called me and said, hey, we can't, we can't do this. <clears throat> I was like, well, okay. I guess I got to find another way to go midget racing now. Um, so then I just started, I just started researching, you know, just started reaching, just basically, I don't know what everybody else in the world does at night, but <laughs> I lay in the bed and read and I Google anything. You know, one night I'm Googling about cams, one night I'm Googling about whatever. And so then I just went hardcore into researching about four cylinder engine platforms. What engine platform? Where's an engine I can go buy and build myself? Because that's what I was used to doing. Go get a stock Yamaha 450, bring it to the shop, build the piss out of it, and go race it. So, okay, I got to do the same thing. I got to find an engine, bring it to the shop, tear it all apart, get rods, pistons, cams, and make it go. And they're coming across a front-wheel drive uh, world record was from Honda K24 from a company called Four Piston. And uh, so I called those guys up, said, well, you know, I want to go midget racing, and I see you make this much power, and da-da-da-da-da. And I kind of thought it was all BS, because they were claiming they could make 500 horsepower out of a K24. And I'm, I knew that the best Toyota and SR11 stuff was you know, 380 maybe at best, right. you know? Man, these guys are full of crap, you know. This is some internet BS, right? And the guy was like, listen, man, you obviously don't believe me. Why don't you just drive up here to Danville, Indiana, and I'll show you. So he kind of got my attention. I said, well, let's just say he's lying by 100 horsepower. That still leaves us at 400, and that would be a big lie, right? <laughs> and right. I'm like, okay. So, so I went and bought a K24 out of Beaver's Junkyard Honda right here. In, where is it at? In Concord or whatever. Beaver's Honda, anyway, or something. Yeah. yeah, I went and bought an engine, went and picked it up, brought it to the shop, stripped it down, and started building it. And uh, when we got it done, we put it in a car and went and raced it. <laughs> how, how much of that engine was was stock or or originally from stock parts when you first ran it? When we first ran it, it was it was pretty. It had a lot of stock stuff in it, right? You know, because again, it was all financial based. Um, and then, you know kept finding the weak link right so okay well this part ain't good enough to go midget racing and this part ain't good enough to go midget racing and so i just kept changing the parts i remember the the first part i think that we built on our own was the chain guides um the chain stock chain guides just wouldn't hold up and so we built our own chain guides and i don't even remember and just kept progressing and progressing and progressing and progressing and to where it is today, and I really wouldn't even call it a Honda anymore. I, did, I shouldn't call it a Honda. I'd like to not call it a Honda. If I could afford to, to if I could figure out how to swap the head around so the exhaust and intake were on opposite sides, which we know how to do if we could just get somebody to fund that, then I would rebadge the engine, you know, where I wouldn't even call it a Honda. Because currently today, the only parts in the motor that are Honda parts are the actual castings. I mean, we're literally cutting everything even out of the stock casting, you know. There's nothing in it that's Honda. Uh, but it's taken a long time, and it for sure hurt Ethan's development. Um, but, I mean, we didn't have a choice. It was the way we had to do it. And, you know, I'm say the first probably three years, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, we 
there was nights we would drive to Pennsylvania Midget Week with three engines and blow all three of them up in the first two days, you know. Yeah, out in the parking lot of the hotel with a water hose through the oil lines, cleaning them all out. <laughs> 18 cans of brake clean later, we got something yeah. we can throw back together and try to build another one. Yeah. So it's looking back on it, it's just been crazy and fun. And, wow, I mean, how much better of an engine builder I am now because of this project. But, uh, yeah, if I had the money to do it a different way, I definitely would have done it a different way. But but it's uh, it's great, you know. And uh, during that time, you know, Coy closed down the motocross uh, team. And when we started our own business, uh, we actually made a lot of money, you know. So then things became easy. We, we got to go. We got to buy a new car. And we got to go to more races and got to build more engine parts and it's just kind of been building you know ever since really so you mentioned starting your own business you've got the polo and the hat on here today <laughs> bundy built motorsports and it's mm-hmm. it's one thing i've never known but what's what's the backstory on the nickname like how did you get dubbed bundy when and where did that happen who's who's responsible <laughs> okay so that goes back to one of your first questions about nathan ramsey so talking again way back 1989 uh, 90 area era and me and Nathan Ramsey we're trying to make it to the big times we you know we hadn't got the call from Roger DeCoster yet so we're cruising around the country racing all these amateur motorcycle events together spending a lot of time together and one day he's and if you know me you know I'm kind of like always cracking jokes and not very serious dude and I uh, have a, some off-the-cuff, smart-ass comments fairly often, right, you know? And uh, so one day, he's just like, dude, you remind me of Al Bundy, because we'd always watch the show Married with Children, right? And it, uh, He's like, you kind of look like him, too. He's like, you're always talking like him, and you kind of look like him. I think I'm just going to call you Bundy from now on. And <laughs> I don't know how a nickname just sticks so hard, but just stuck. I mean, now it's done been passed on to another generation, right? It's it's ridiculous. But Nathan Ramsey gave me the nickname Bundy, and it was based off a TV show, Married with Children, that had Al Bundy in it. It probably gets to a point where it's weird when someone calls you by your actual given name, right? Yeah, I was totally surprised when you said John earlier. I was like, (laughs) nobody knows John. (laughs) Yeah. So my family don't even call me John anymore. You know, It's it's just the craziest thing. So, but the uh, what's it been like for you, Ethan, just coming along, you know, having built this entire program? You, you guys have really got this Honda motor up to speed and competitive with with motors that have been out there a lot longer and took a lot longer to get up to speed. What's it like? Um, first off, it wasn't easy, and I don't <laughs> feel like we're done yet, but. I think uh, I think it's been a long, hard process to get where we are right now, and I think most people know that we work pretty hard at uh, keeping our midget engine program and uh, chassis program uh, top level. So it's uh, it's been pretty cool, though. You know, I think I think the whole experience you get to see so much more doing it this way, and than you do just because there's so many nice parts you can go buy these days. You know. You can build a midget with 
you know, pretty little brain knowledge, I'd say. You, you can go to Spike or, you know, Smith Tire or whoever, and you can order the nicest stuff, and it's as simple as bolting it on the car to, to create a nice midget. You know, that's simple as it is. But to me, what impresses me is when you look at somebody's car and you see the simplicity it would take to work on it. Because on a night-to-night basis, when you're racing 10 days in a row, you know, if you got to break your wrist to get in somewhere and get something out or get something loose or, you know, something's just not as clean uh, as it should be, that's that's what impresses me about the midget stuff. And, and I feel like that's, you know, that goes back to what you were saying about building our own program and stuff like that. And uh, it just makes me proud of where our stuff is. I, I really do think that, we have something with the motor that no one else has, and I think that before long it's going to be an advantage. And I think it's hard to get an advantage right now in midget racing because, you know, everybody has similar stuff. They have, they all have spikes. They all have same bird cages. They all have same shocks. They all run Toyotas or SR11s. So unless you come up with some off-the-hip trick idea and it happens to work, you know, it's, it's really hard to gain an advantage right now and I feel like we're in a unique position to where, you know, we could pull that off, I'd say. So I think uh, I'm super proud and super pumped, honestly, on uh, where our program is right now. This would really be a question for both of you then, but does it make, when you do achieve success, does it make it that much sweeter after all the blood and sweat you've got in the game to get to this point? You first, Ed. Oh, all day long, yeah. I mean, yeah, super meaningful. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible to look back and see, uh, you know, what happened the first time we rolled the car out of the track at Kokomo at the SmackDown five or four years hmm. ago, whatever it's been now, uh, to where we've come, you know, where we are. Uh, it's just an incredible journey that we've been on and just, like, man, so thankful to just even be able to do that, you know. And, you know, what Ethan's learned uh, through all the trials and stuff, I think, I think I could be pretty proud as a dad to uh, to know what he's learned through all this and, and just to take with him that, you know what, if you want to do it bad enough, you can figure out a way to do it. So it's, pre- it's a pretty cool thing. Too, like on my side of things, um, well, Kokomo, that was a funny story because we showed up to that. It's a real quick story, but it's a good one. We showed up to our first ever midget race. It was Kokomo Smackdown with 40 of the best open-wheel drivers, you know, in the world. And uh, we go out, and this thing's running like 6,000 RPM, just bogging the whole way. I'm like, this thing's a piece. <laughs> and uh, we're eating at Applebee's after the race with Flea. I think he, I was at the table with you that night. Yeah, might have been. you would have been. Yeah. And uh, he's like, well, what rear end do you have in that thing? And we're like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, oh, well, they make two different kinds. We're like, well, hell, that would have been good to know. <laughs> you know, we had the wrong, rear, the wrong gear in it for the wrong rear end. But um, what was funny about that, though, is, see, we had done a couple of days of testing at Millbridge, and the car ran really well. But then the rear end that we tested with at Millbridge was ugly, it had been beat up. And when we bought a bunch of used stuff, we had this one rear end that was kind of pretty. You know, it hadn't been beat up too bad. We're like, hey, we're going to a race. Let's put the good rear end in it, you know? Yeah. Well, we didn't know there were two different ring and pinions. So. <laughs> but yeah. as far as, uh, you know, Building your own stuff and it making it that much sweeter at the end, I think uh, you know. I think 100% it does. I think you look back and you see how much work you put into something, 
And uh, when it finally pays off, I feel like it's it's got to be better than, you know, taking a bank account and going and buying everything brand new and the nicest of the nicest and, you know, performing well. To me, that's expected. If you show up with the baddest car known to man because you could afford it, well, then you ought to win, you know. There's no reason not to. But when you take something from scratch and you kind of build it up and then you go win, to me, that's that's a lot more impressive. And that, that might sound stupid, but that's how I feel about it. You mentioned a lot of names today. Um, who in the sport like, do you lean on? Do you work with the most? Do you um, first to help when you need something or the first year to jump in to help when they need something like I want to take this one, then you can follow up. All right, you go first. That changed when I died. So I had leaned completely on Chad Boat the entire time. Uh, Chad had helped our team get off the ground. They built the first pipe for the midget engine, Billy Boat Exhaust. And so Chad had really helped me get up to speed, you know. But Chad was kind of, Chad and Billy, you know, they're a lot more like, talking to me and Ethan was kind of still a little kid running around with the little kids at the racetrack kind of sort of right so there was a really strong relationship between me and boat then I died and Ethan had a better relationship with Cannon and Robert Dalby so the I guess you would call the alliance maybe between me and boat switched whenever I had the heart attack from me and Boat to Ethan, and I'll let you take over from here. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with what Dad said there. I think Dad and Chad's relationship, you know, obviously is is pretty good. And uh, we parked beside them for a long time at the track, and we'd kind of lean on them and bounce ideas off of them. But when he had his heart attack, I'd always been closer to Cannon and Robert. So I kind of uh, stuck that direction and, you know, started parking beside them. And me and Robert talk a lot about car setup and stuff like that. So... We uh we bounce ideas off each other all day long, and it tends to work out in the end most time. Are you still close? You still still work with the the CB industry guys? I like that relationship still exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Super yeah. good relationship. Not a bad one by no means. Just Walk, still. Yeah, just just different at the track, I'd say. But um, I think I'm still more comfortable talking to Chad, and he's still more comfortable talking to Robert, even when everybody's at the track now together. Exactly. Know, so. Uh, yeah. No, it's so everything's a good deal. Every which direction. <laughs> so wh- what's the next steps for you guys? What's the future hold? What does uh, 2023 have in store for Bundy Built Motorsports? Well, 2023, um, it's a little late, but right now we're looking at running Extreme and USAC up until Midget Week and then kind of pick, pick a direction at that point and, uh, you know, follow one or the other, see which way the straw lands at that point in time. But um, – Got a few sponsor things I'm working on. Hopefully they go through and um, we can run as many races as possible. You know, my goal is to run 60 races this year. Uh, just all dependent on funding, like Dad said earlier. But uh, if I can pull these few sponsor things off, then I'm, I'm planning on running every every race known to man. Perfect. Well, guys, I thank you for the time today. This has been an absolute blast. Ho- hope you've had fun doing it. Thanks for driving over from Mooresville to join us today. And uh, this has been good. I can't wait for folks to hear it. No, I've had a good time. I appreciate y'all having us. Yeah, thank you very much.
airborne sounding, marking the final two minutes of the Open Red Flag conditions. Thanks to everyone for listening this week to Open Red. Really cool interview there with the the Bundys. That was a uh, I I've known those guys for a while now since I moved to North Carolina and learned a lot about the both of them uh, getting into that interview that I did not know ahead of time. So. Uh, again, thanks for listening. Make sure you find and subscribe to Open Red uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to rate and leave a review of the show as well. That really helps kind of drive uh, the show and to show up into more people's feeds who maybe aren't quite subscribed to the show yet. Got a guest suggestion? You can tweet me at Ross Weiss, and don't forget to use the hashtag Open Red when you do. Just use the hashtag Open Red any other time. You're on your Twitter as well. Help drive people to the show. The more listeners, the better. We can add to the, the Open Red family here. Again, my name is Ross Weiss. We'll see you back here in a couple weeks for another episode of Open Red. Hashtag Open Red.